Greetings, thank you for joining for episode number 140 of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul and in this episode we hear from Evren Savcı of Yale University. She's author of Queer in Translation, Sexual Politics under Neoliberal Islam, published by Duke University Press. It's a book that examines the translation of LGBT political language to Turkey and the shifting wider public discourse around LGBT rights in Turkey, where of course we've seen in recent months a ramping up of rhetoric from the government and increased targeting of LGBT activism. Before we get on with the interview, let me just remind you to check out our new website, our new URL, turkeybooktalk.com. That's where you'll be able to find the whole archive of episodes going back to 2015, as well as various other things. And remember that if you like what we're doing, you can support the podcast by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Becoming a Turkey Book Talk member gets you various extras, including an exclusive discount deal of 30% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's extensive Turkey and Ottoman history series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey and Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members who get a special code to use at the online checkout. That deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders and ebooks. Turkey Book Talk members also receive transcripts in both English and Turkish of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published and you get transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extra ones not previously published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to articles and other content related to the subject in the email that I send out to members with every new episode, which is ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now onto our conversation with Evren Savja. Much of her book explores the emerging public debate around LGBT rights in Turkey a little over 10 years ago when that debate was rather different from what it is today after a relative flourishing of LGBT activism and the emergence of new civil society groups in the 2000s. Of course, in more recent years, the mood has darkened, with the LGBT movement becoming pretty much bête noire for the Conservative government and top officials like President Erdogan depicting it basically as an alien threat to Turkey's national existence. I started by asking Evren Savcı if she's surprised by the harsh course that things have recently taken. I can't say I was expecting it, but I also cannot say I'm terribly surprised, I guess. I do think that maybe I'm surprised at the pace at which things have turned, how within the span of a few months, really, things have gone. I mean, there there has been an authoritarian atmosphere in Turkey that has, of course, affected queers, queer activists, and feminist activists significantly. But the recent turn, I do think, has happened fairly quickly. So, in, so to the question of whether I was surprised, I guess I was surprised at the pace. But the one thing that I will say, the thing that surprises me the most, though I have been thinking about it, and I think the more I think about it, the more sense it makes, is this shift in uh, the rhetoric of the government. So you, as you know, in the book, I talk about an emergence of a governmental discourse on quote-unquote homosexuality 
in around 2010, which, you know, wasn't received very well then by queer activists either. These debates about whether homosexuality is an illness or a sin, how should it be seen? But these were alive and complicated debates at the time. And now for the first time, we're seeing a governmental discourse that says LGBTI plus doesn't exist in Turkey or they don't exist. This they don't exist paradigm, you know, has um, been used by Ahmadinejad in Iran, for instance, but was not really used by the AKP government until extreme, like very, very recently. So I think that is an interesting change. But I do think that this change has to do with an increase in authoritarianism and a nationalist authoritarianism, the political dependency of the major governing party on their coalition partner that's deeply ultranationalist. So I think there's an increasing reliance on an ideal other as something foreign, like foreign elements, things that don't belong, things don't, they need, that need to be cleaned up. In Turkish, you know, the, um, the term that's used very often these days is milli veyarli, so like national and local. So there's a real redrawing of national boundaries symbolically. So I think in that sense, calling LGBTI plus people foreign elements is something that's going to be politically, I imagine the government thinks, useful to consolidate a voter base and to gather people around, kind of an easy target. Yeah. And turning to the book, you take us back to over a decade ago when some of the first debates around the issue, as you mentioned there, under the AKP government were being had. So we're talking towards the end of the 2000s. And until then, it had basically really been a non-issue. But the first hint of kind of government attention or addressing of the issue was when Selma Aliyeh Kavaf, uh, who was then the Minister of Women and Family Affairs, caused this media storm really on uh, International Women's Day in March 2010, when she published this article with the title, Homosexuality is an Illness and It Should Be Cured. And that title basically sums up the argument. Um, It's not a very original argument. And that today is almost a forgotten episode now. But in retrospect, it's really key as the first hint of this tendency that's only accelerated in the years since. Uh, Yeah, so in... The first chapter of the book that comes right after introduction, I talk about this issue and I do trace that statement by Kavaf, which was really the first time any minister in the Turkish Republic, to my knowledge, made a big mainstream media statement about homosexuality being an illness like that. It has a bit of a background. So I do take us, while I introduce that story, I take us back to 2008 to the headscarf debates of the time when Burhan Kuzu, another figure who, you know, kind of uh, disappeared for a bit and then recently passed away, um, apparently, makes a statement, you know, as the, the AKP is in the midst of a quote-unquote headscarf opening, people are panicking about headscarves at universities being permitted, leading to headscarf at, like, high schools and then middle schools and elementary schools, like it's the slippery slope argument. So he says publicly in 2008 that, you know, homosexuals are also asking for rights, like the right to get married. Are we going to give it to them just because they're asking for it? We have to act within the, I think, within something like within the responsibilities of, of power, of the party in power, like Iktidar. So that's a moment when he actually ends up being the first person that makes a comparison between the right to wear the headscarf and homosexual rights, queer rights, LGBT rights as issues that are comparable. And he makes them obviously um, 
comparable as outrageous, unreasonable demands, right? You know, the right to wear the headscarf at elementary school as unreasonable as the right to, for, you know, queers to get married or something. But that does actually unfold, uh, well, a, a particular discourse in a number of spaces in Turkey through that time where headscarf activists are asked over and over again in different platforms what they think about LGBT rights. And I'm sure that they actually answer the question quite differently and they produce different standpoints that I would not find all equally bothersome or disturbing. Like some people really don't know much about it. Some people say, you know, there's this discourse of it's a it's an illness, but other people say it's not an illness, it's natural, it's just a sin in Islam, but we also don't want there to be cruelty against queers. So all these lead up to that interview, which is interesting because the interview, as you mentioned, is for International Women's Day. But the headline, this was for Hurriyet, the headline is homosexuality as an illness and it should be cured. This is not the only thing that she says in the interview, of course, but she too is being pushed by a journalist who knows that she has conservative positions vis-a-vis uh, -vis a number of things, like Kabak at the time was making claims about being really disturbed at sex scenes on TV shows and, you know, morality, the family, conservative, traditional family, things like that. So, so it becomes yet another moment when I think a secularist-leaning journalist wants to expose the homophobia of, you know, an Islamist government, in this case, because she's a representative of the government, she's not just a headscarf activist, and, and I think it really then propelled forward even more debates about whether that is the proper national position, the proper Islamic position, etc. But, but those debates, as I said, were actually quite, you know, rich and interesting. And there just was more debate of it. There was a complexity to the positions people were holding because I don't think that the debates and the public was yet as polarized as it is today. So what's sad to me is that for closure, even though these are obviously quite problematic statements, there were lots of people who were not necessarily LGBT activists or even LGBT friendly, quote unquote, who did not agree with her, who disagreed with her in different ways. So, so I think that the foreclosure of those kinds of spaces of discussion has been one of the important changes since then, because now there really are two positions you can take properly. Obviously, people are fighting against this kind of consolidation and polarization, but, but it's been quite significant. Yeah. Incidentally, I just learned that uh, Kavaf actually left politics uh, after she was a minister, and then she left the AKP. But she's actually now a founding member of Ali Babajan's Deva Party, which I didn't know. Pretty interesting. So looking to make a political comeback of some kind. Yeah, it is interesting. I did see that in the news, like when um, when the Deva Party, uh, you know, founders list or whatever was announced. I did I did see her name, and it made me smile. I was like, all these characters from my book are coming back alive because she was not renewed. I mean, you know, I think that's kind of part of the, how this government works. She was not reappointed after her term, and that was not at all connected to her statements. The government didn't make any statements about why she was not being renewed, and certainly didn't say anything about those. But she did, I guess, draw a bunch of heat at the time that maybe the government was, was not willing to have. Somebody else who pops up in the book and is still on the scene is uh, Hilal Kaplan. Many listeners may know her. She's a very uh, prominent media figure. And in the book, she emerges in a chapter 
on these debates that you mentioned there between LGBT activists and Islamist activists. And she was one of the Islamist activists. And um, obviously, this was a completely different age. And it was a time when the language was really about uh, these Islamist grassroots battling tutelage, secularism, authoritarianism. And it was really before they felt kind of ensconced in power. And one of these debates that went on that you talk about in the book was between these Islamist actors and LGBT activists. As you say there, they didn't see eye to eye, it's fair to say, but uh, the conversation was richer than it is today, at least. I don't know, could you just kind of open those conversations up for us a bit more, you know, take us back to that time, back to those debates and what do they illuminate for us today? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's really, um, I, I will definitely do that. But I will also add quickly that it's really both interesting and tricky to talk within the particular example of Hilal Kaplan, because I made my argument in that chapter about dialogue and not questioning political sincerity when we engage in dialogues with people, despite her, because she does really, I think, embody political insincerity. But the story that I tell in the book is how her and um, two of her kind of activist friends, I suppose, in 2008 even, back in 2008, 2009, they were um, circulating this Freedom for Everyone petition in the midst of debates about permitting headscarf wearing on public college campuses and public offices, having a really holistic understanding of justice, saying we will not be comfortable wearing our headscarves to universities and to, and to public offices as long as these things are also not fulfilled. And that list is really capacious. Like it has, it talks about, you know, Alevi rights. It talks about the cruelty against the Kurds. It talks about the 301 trials. Like, you know, the, the 301, section 301 or article 301 of the Turkish penal code is about denigrating Turkishness and a lot of minority people, but also like intellectuals like have been charged with it historically. So they do have this really, really holistic understanding of justice and they in fact have a really complex critique of identity rights um, that separates people from each other. You know, they say we don't want to be identified as women with headscarves as if that's an identity. It's not right to be separated like that. Like, and they do talk about how they met each other at Pranting's funeral. But they don't want to say, we walked at Hamilton's funeral as women with headscarves. So they they don't really make a claim towards human rights so much, but they do try to talk about an Islamic alternative of haq, of justice, that's more capacious than the sum of these divided up identity politics, which I felt was actually very promising and interesting at the time. And they did get quite a bit of, you know, interviews um, and playtime. But then um, there are radical shifts. So then I don't think necessarily the three of them continue together. So Hilal Kaplan is a much more prominent figure today than the other two. And she had her own column for a while in Taraf, I believe. Um, and I downloaded all those articles, all those uh, columns, because journals and newspapers get shut down in Turkey and you can never access their you know, archives again. But I luckily do have those saved. So her position at the time, also vis-a-vis -vis Kurdish politics, is really different. I mean, she is very vocal about her support of the Kurdish peace process, let's say. And then I also talk about how at the time there's a real interest among at least a certain subset of headscarf activists to be in dialogue with LGBT activists because they do see, I think, an interesting place for a critique of the state within queer theory and queer studies. They're well read, you know, and I think they they do use, I know for a fact that they do use some of the work of 
queer theorists such as Judith Butler. I talk about that in the book as well. But they're ultimately interested in a particular angle and they do, they seem interested at the time in 2008-2009 to forge alliances. And I also want to say that was a time of, that was a time of at least a real attempt of solidarities. Like I think the January 19th platform that was formed after the assassination of Crown Think was really central in bringing together a bunch of different groups of people, different groups with different interests and different priorities and different even political positions around the larger issue of racist violence, state violence and nationalism, ultranationalism, etc. So so that it's that kind of time that then seems to really start being undone with the Kavak statement. Though by the time of the Kavak statement Itilal Kaplan who comes out and says, I disagree with the statement of homosexuality as an illness. This is a Western secular scientific framework that is not true according to Islam. The one thing I guess that doesn't change is Kaplan's belief in a homogenous and reified Islam that she clearly has the keys to the knowledge of. So she she doesn't waver on that front across time. Otherwise, politically, she has become very anti-Kurdish, anti-LGBT, anti-feminist, anti-kind of everything that she was allegedly standing up for a decade ago. So in that sense, there's a real slippage. I think there is one thread, which is her sense that there is something we can call the Islamic position on something that she was speaking on behalf of. But she was, you know, she was definitely, she was producing much more complex discourses than now she's just another government mouthpiece. Another key episode that you address in the book is the murder of Ahmet Yildiz in Istanbul in July 2008. Now, he was a 26-year-old gay man, and his case became notorious at the time. It was dubbed, quote, Turkey's first gay honour killing, quite spectacularly. Just talk about this episode. Why did that case of Ahmet Yildiz capture such public attention in Turkey and elsewhere, internationally indeed, at the time? So um, I think interestingly, Ahmet Yildiz's story captured um, Turkish national media attention once it captured British media attention. Um, and I think this says something very interesting about the Turkish national psyche. But anyway, so so the um, there was a piece in The Independent a few days after Ahmet's murder that captioned it, as you just mentioned, as Turkey's first gay honor killing, kind of question mark, because it wasn't concluded then obviously what the case was. But, but it did capture, I think this kind of recognition, I understand obviously why this kind of international recognition of violence against gays and queers is important for people who want that kind of violence to end. But one of the things that I talk about in the book is that Ahmed wasn't just a gay man, he also was a Kurdish man. And the particular ways in which the story travels the moment it's called an honor killing and, you know, as you know, in Turkish, honor killings are called törejinayeti, which means more like a custom killing. Transnationally, they're imagined as Muslim crimes. And obviously, in Muslim-majority countries, they're not, because people do know that there, there is no, you know, approval of, of such practice in Islam. They are often racialized and attributed to Kurdish backward customs. So Ahmed's Kurdishness only comes up as a way to pin a certain kind of family violence onto backwards kind of Eastern families. And what doesn't get talked about is the state violence, you know, launched against Kurdish bodies in the Turkish Republic. So I do 
problematize the way in which one individual Kurdish gay man's murder gets spectacularized as an event, as the Turkish government has this ongoing war on Kurdish bodies, and many people die every year, and we don't hear their names oftentimes. So I do say that it's important to kind of think structurally when we seek justice for violence and to not just think about eventful deaths, but also slow deaths of various populations and to not stop seeking justice for this kind of violence, but to maybe rethink the frameworks through which we do so. Because family violence is a problem, unfortunately, everywhere, even though the family has this romantic narrative about itself as a safe haven where people are supposed to be loved and cherished and accepted. It is an ideological narrative that does not match the truth. There is family violence, intimate partner violence, domestic violence everywhere in the world. It's not an issue of Christianity versus Islam or it's not an issue of, you know, Turks versus Kurds. So I guess what I would I suggest in that chapter is, you know, let's look at how these stories are told to get attention and let's rethink what we're willing to give our attention to and let's be a little bit more capacious in our thinking about violence in general. So we can't tell the Ahmed Tilda's story and his very unfortunate murders as not an honor killing, but it's much easier and I'm afraid it's more seductive when it is told as a you know Muslim honor killing or a Kurdish custom killing because I think it helps some fractions of society push away this kind of violence onto other bodies as if family violence only happens in Kurdish homes, only happens in Muslim countries. Much of the anti-LGBT sentiment that we're seeing recently really has fed on this populist idea of cultural authenticity, really, wrapped up in this much broader narrative of defending the nation against, you know, insidious foreign cultural threats, a kind of militarized language, because there's a whole other set of anxieties sort of laying underneath the surface there. Just talk about that framing, really, of LGBT rights as basically a Western imperialist plot to destroy Turkey. You mentioned uh, how cover mentioned TV series Mm. spreading kind of immoral norms over 10 years ago. Really what struck me in recent years has been how people are talking about Netflix as being this great big kind of cultural threat that people can't control. And it's a kind of symbol of cultural values that are seen as rapidly changing and a huge threat to this traditional way of looking at things. And that has really underpinned a lot of the really nasty rhetoric that you've seen in the media, how LGBT rights is basically defending perversion and and whatnot. It's basically wrapped up in that whole deeper cultural anxiety of being kind of swept away in a Western imperialist, cultural imperialist plot. Let's talk about that broader framing of the whole issue. Yeah, thank you so much um, for this question. When you know, it's interesting. Like this morning, I was attending over Zoom, obviously a panel at University of Cambridge. They're organizing a series of panels this week under um, queering authoritarianism. And this this morning, there were a couple of talks in the panel, one on Hungary and the other one on Russia. And it scarily sounds like Turkey. So it's very interesting that under claims of cultural authenticity and national and local values or traditional something, all these countries that have fairly different politics and structures, I mean, they're, they're doing the exact same thing. So everybody's authenticity looks exactly the same, which I think should make us question. 
authenticity anyway. But also in the book, I, I explain why I find these discussions around LGBT as, because these have been also debates in theoretical circles. There are interesting parallels between some theoretical and intellectual complications of, let's say, you know, international LGBT rights organizations deploying a certain kind of way of understanding sexuality, which standardizes our understandings of sexuality into a particular Western formation, um, and these political authoritarian moves to claim LGBT is non-local, non-national, foreign, and therefore potentially dangerous elements. And this is why I think we really need to move away from the traditional versus modern or foreign versus authentic slash indigenous, Western versus indigenous kinds of binaries. I think they're absolutely irrelevant. But I also, one last thing I want to say about this is this, the moment Erdogan made this claim about, you know, LGBT doesn't exist here or it's not from us, it's not from here, it's foreign. I saw a lot of playful counterclaims that say we do exist and they do make a lot of references to queer sexualities and queer, what, what we might claim to be queer formations in one way or another in the Ottoman Empire. And I find these things, maybe dangerous is an overstatement, but a little worrisome because I don't think we should go down the route of justifying our existence because some men were having sex with each other in the Ottoman Empire too. I mean, I think these kinds of historical continuity claims to establish a certain kind of authenticity, like yes, we were on these lands for hundreds of years, I find play into the same authentic versus inauthentic binary. Right, so then we're going to spend our lives trying to find some roots of whatever practice we want to justify in the Ottoman Empire, and I don't think that's the correct way to go. And and the other thing is that I do find that there is really exciting and important work queer activists and also feminist activists have been doing in Turkey that's continuing, and now spending some of that energy into proving that, quote-unquote, we exist is a really waste of our energy. Yeah, that's really interesting. I never thought about it like that, actually, you know, trying to prove authenticity is actually playing a game that isn't healthy in the first place. Just wonder, to conclude now, I wonder if you could just reflect more broadly, you know, how do you see things developing in the current, in, in the coming months and years? I mean, it's quite hard to be optimistic in the short term, given the, the trajectory that we're seeing. But um, in the mid to long term, do you see cause for optimism in terms of some of the bottom up social tendencies in Turkey that may be developing? I mean, if you look at polling, despite everything, the kind of shift in social attitudes is in a liberal direction, even a small one, kind of in line with trends globally, uh, which may be surprising given the political atmosphere. But um, I just wonder if you could just reflect on tentative expectations for the short term and the long term. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I will first say that I am an optimist. So even when there's no reasonable cause for optimism, I will be an optimist. But I do, I am genuinely about this particular situation too. I mean, about, about Turkey's short and long term. Maybe short term, short term will be rough. I think it would be irresponsible to say that I'm, I have high hopes for the short term because, you know, as a thinker, I don't just pay attention to some like abstract gay rights in the country. Like the economy is important and that's really, really tanking. And it's going to hurt lots of people. So, so the short term, I think, looks rough. Um, but here is what what I'm hopeful about in the long term. First of all, even though the recent targeting 
heavy targeting of LGBT, you know, student clubs, organizations, politics, the rainbow flag, the symbols and images, so heavily, so heavy-handedly, even the withdrawal from the Istanbul Convention, to me, are really desperate measures of a government that has absolutely failed, and they have acknowledged this in their own words, fails to form some sort of a cultural hegemony. This this real cracking down on feminists and on queers, to me, is an act of, like, it's like let's try this one last thing to see if we can garner a bigger voter base. Can we try the good old homophobia to see that, you know, if about nothing else, maybe people will gather around us about this particular thing? So I find these desperate measures and desperate acts, and and I think that to me says that they too know that this is unsustainable and it's not going to last. So I feel like these are kind of last desperate tries. The other thing that I talk about in the book that makes me hopeful about the especially mid to long term future is that even though the things that have happened to Turkey in the last decade are really sad and unfortunate, and even though the economic hole that this government has dug the country into is going to be a difficult one to get out of. I do think that, and I I argue this in the book, that the particular, what I call deployment of marginality that AKB has engaged in, so the ways in which so many people have been rendered marginalized in the country who were not before, they have not experienced marginalization, they have not experienced not being the norm, not being the respectable citizen, not being the those who felt like they belonged to the country. So since the number of marginalized, the number of quote-unquote terrorists, the number of others, objects, those who are morally othered by the government have increased, it has really taught people what it's like to be the other of the nation state and to be at the other end of the particular marginalization politics of the nation state. And and the way in which people think and talk about, let's say, the Kurdish issue has changed in the last 20 years. I truly believe that. The way in which people have thought and talked about the Alevi issue has changed. The way in which people think and talk about the queer issues, LGBT issues, has changed. It just has changed in the last 20 years. And I think that part of that change, we owe to the fact that people have tasted what marginalization feels like. So I think going forward, when there's a moment we get to go forward, things are going to be better. I do think that. Just going back to that desperation point, I mean, uh, I think it's definitely true that the government kind of senses this this reality that society is kind of slipping away from them. They can't shape it in the way that perhaps they want. But I just wonder if that kind of desperation means a really turbulent period ahead, because as they flounder around trying to keep a grip on things and trying desperately to use all the levers that they can to kind of shape society in the direction that they want, that heralds um, a kind of acceleration of these tendencies, this crackdown that we're seeing. And I don't know, I just think in the short term, maybe things could get very, very nasty indeed. No, you're right. It's it's very possible because I think, you know, desperate people do desperate things. So so it is it is possible and, and there is worse. So, like unfortunately there is worse than what we have now in Turkey. That's imaginable. And we do we do see it in some of our neighboring countries, to be honest. So so I do think that things are gonna get worse before they can get better. But I hope we can all remember that they will get better. But I agree with you that the short term has the potential to look really, really difficult and messy and nasty. That was Evren Savja. Many thanks to her for joining for episode 140. 
Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support it by becoming a member on Patreon. Membership pays for things like our new website, turkeybooktalk.com. And membership also gets you that 30% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury. Transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. Also do rate or review Turkey Book Talk on whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via Twitter or like our Facebook page. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners. So do send any recommendations, feedback or abuse to WilliamJohnArmstrong at gmail.com. And don't forget to check out Friends of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter put together by journalists Razie Akkoch and Diego Cupolo, a package bringing together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. Just go to turkeyrecap.com to find out how to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.